This morning, as we continue our study of the book of Proverbs, we're going to be looking at a smaller section of Proverbs chapter 12 today, and we're going to be talking about this idea of building a life that can withstand what's being thrown at it. Now, what we've done is we've been going through the book of Proverbs. We've been looking at large chunks and large sections. We've been looking at the majority of certain chapters as we've been working our way through. But there's so much content in the book of Proverbs that the truth is, if we were to to really look at every single detail that's in Proverbs, it would probably take us several years, I would imagine, to do justice to work our way through it. So what I'm doing um, and what I'm taking the liberty to do is to take some of the highlights of what it what it, what it emphasizes in the book of Proverbs and showing those to us or bringing those out for us. And in the section we're looking at today, like I mentioned just a moment ago, we're talking about this idea of building a life that can withstand what's being thrown at it. So if you would take your Bibles and open with me to Proverbs chapter 12. What we're going to do is we're going to be looking at Proverbs 12. We're going to start at verse 7, and we're going to read down to verse 10, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 25, and there's a variety of things that are shown to us here that I think are helpful when we talk about this idea of building a life that can withstand what's being thrown at it. So Proverbs 12, starting with verse 7, it says this, "'The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised.'" Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And then jump to verse 25 where it says this, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to carve out some time right now to look at what your word states and to meditate on the truths that we find in this portion of Scripture. Lord, we know that you're doing a a great and mighty work in our lives. You're building us up in ways that uh, are far beyond what we would naturally expect. And you're helping us to withstand all sorts of things that are thrown at us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at some of the things that are emphasized in the portion of Scripture that we just read together, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd give us your wisdom, that you'd give us your counsel, and that you'd help us to understand more about what it looks like to develop a deep and abiding and mature relationship with you. And we commit this time to your care, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone remember the last day of sixth grade? It's probably a a blurry thought for most people in in their mind. And I think it would have been a blurry thought in my mind if something particular did not happen that day. Well, first of all, that was the last day at my elementary school because seventh grade, we started at another school. So it was the very last day at elementary school. But I remember the last day of sixth grade for something very specific and very in, just very in particular. And that was the last day of sixth grade, I got into a fight. I didn't intend on getting in a fight that day. Some of you are cheering that on. I didn't tell you whether I won or lost. I won. But um, I got in a fight. I didn't expect it. And I don't even remember what prompted it. I I have no idea what prompted it. I don't know if we were just overexcited about what was coming up with the summer. But what I do remember is that it happened during an outdoor gym class. So we had an outdoor gym class that day, last day of school. Our gym teacher took us outside. We were out on the playground. We were doing things. and, And somehow we got into a fight. And I remember that being that it was the last day of school... 
our gym teacher had absolutely no, he was in no mood for this, right? He was in no mood for this kind of behavior, and he snapped. He absolutely snapped. So after yelling at me and yelling at the kid that I was fighting with, he took a basketball, and he winged it as hard as he could at the other kid. And it whacked the kid, and then the kid bent over and started crying. And then the gym teacher took that same basketball and winged it at me. But because I knew that it was coming, I caught it. And then I smirked, and then I bounced it back to him. That did not help my case at all. (laughs) But I remember thinking, in my mind, in my sixth grade mind, I was like, this day couldn't go any better. Like, this day couldn't go any better. I just thought that it was fantastic. I definitely benefited from the fact that I was the second one to have the ball thrown at me, though, because he didn't catch me off guard. Now, some things in life, admittedly, catch us off guard, right? There's some things that catch us absolutely off guard. There are other experiences that are a little bit easier to anticipate when we get into the kind of the real details of life. And there are probably things that are being thrown at you right now at present some of which may feel like it's come out of left field. So how are you presently handling what's being thrown at you? You've undoubtedly been dealing with all sorts of surprises and unexpected things. And I'm bringing that up because when we look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, we're, we're being invited to basically ask, are we building the kind of life that can withstand what's being thrown at it? Or are we basically living a life that that seems to be continually caught off guard by the things that come our way? Now, admittedly, for for all of us, it doesn't matter what season of life you're at. Some of us in the room here are young. Some of us are older. Same with those of you joining us via the live stream. Uh, But for many people, this year has been a year that has been constant, unforeseen challenges constant, unexpected difficulties. Some of us are dealing with changes in relationships. Some of us are dealing with changes in occupations. We know that that some of us in our church family are mourning the the loss of typical routines. That's been one of the more difficult things, I think, for me personally, how some of my routines... I'm a person of routine, and I don't like when my routines change. But when your routines get interrupted, that could be a bit challenging. Some of us are mourning the loss of our personal freedoms. Some of us are mourning the loss of, of... just good health in general. Some of us are not happy, particularly this week, about some of the extra hoops that we feel like we have to jump through in order to be able to travel. But here's what I know. In the midst of all of that, right, in the midst of all sorts of things that are changing, um, this is what I know. Our circumstances and our opportunities are always changing. They're always changing. No matter what season of life you're at, your, your circumstances and your opportunities are always changing. Right now, they seem heightened, Right now, the changes seem more drastic, but they're always changing. But here's the thing. The nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ, never changes. And that's something that I I take great comfort in, the fact that His nature never changes. So my circumstances and my opportunities certainly might change, but His nature does not change. And with His help, we can withstand whatever is thrown at us in this world. And so as we look at Proverbs 12 today, just a section of it, we're going to see some great examples of what that looks like. So what does this portion of Scripture teach us to withstand, and what does it teach us that we can withstand? Well, one of the things that you'll notice in the verses that I read first, and I'll reread these in a second, verses 7 and 8, that we're shown that we can withstand the onslaught of wickedness. So look again at those verses with me. Verses 7 and 8 of Proverbs 12, it says this, "'The wicked are overthrown and are no more.'" 
but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Let's pause there for just a second. I want you to think about the Lord's creation. When the Lord created this earth, He created everything perfectly. There were no sin, there was no shortcoming, there were no regrets, but knowingly, Scripture reveals to us that mankind rebelled against Him and we invited wickedness into our earthly experience. And wickedness is something that mankind has struggled with ever since it was first invited into our lives. And when you look at the cultures of this world, you can see that the cultures of this world have historically celebrated evil. We champion violence. We give hearty approval to greed. Sometimes we envy those who seem to get away with the most evil. And it's as if we've turned rebellion against the Lord into some sort of a game, and we're just trying to attempt to see how much we can get away with. But those who have a genuine relationship with the Lord can testify to the fact that they are no longer mastered by wickedness. That's one of the benefits we experience as believers in Jesus Christ. We once were mastered by wickedness. We are no longer mastered by wickedness as we've come to know Christ. And the way that that works out is this. The victory that Christ secured on the cross is a victory that's shared with every single person who trusts in Him. And that victory starts to become apparent in all areas of a believer's life. And we see that effect, that we see the effect of the victory that Christ has secured. It's on display in the portion of Proverbs that we just read, even as it's talking about this idea of withstanding the onslaught of wickedness. And so in this passage, you have Solomon speaking about the fact that the household of the righteous will stand. And a man who exhibits good sense will be commended. These are the things that he's describing here. This, by the way, is the fruit of a changed heart. This is the type of thing that's evidence of the Lord actually doing a change or accomplishing a change within us. The behaviors that you and I exhibit, those are the fruit of the things that we believe. So whatever you believe, whatever I believe is going to come out in my life one way or another. So whatever action you do, whatever, I even tell people, you know, even, even something as simple as brushing your teeth it is, is the fruit of a belief. Well, why is that the fruit of a belief? Well, if I believe that if I brush my teeth, I'm going to have healthier hygiene, better teeth, stronger teeth that are going to last me a lot longer, then I'm going to exhibit a behavior. So our behaviors are the fruits of our beliefs in any area of life, in any specific region that we would, that we would analyze. And so the victory Christ secures for us, it starts to become apparent in all areas of life. And the fruit of a changed heart starts to show itself in the righteousness that's exhibited in a person's life through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And that shows up at home, and that shows up just in general in our life. It shows up in each of those spheres, and it stands in stark contrast to the long-term effects of those who persist in wickedness. And so Solomon, like he's doing all throughout the book of Proverbs, he's trying to show us contrasts. He shows us a contrast between wisdom and folly, righteousness and wickedness. He does this in each section that we've been working our way through. And Solomon tells us that those who continue to embrace wickedness will ultimately, the the words he uses here, will be despised and will eventually be overthrown. That both things will happen to them. They'll be despised and they'll be overthrown if they continue to embrace wickedness. But here's the thing. 
If you believe in Jesus Christ and your faith in Christ is maturing, odds are you're, you're probably at a spot or you're, you're developing a mindset where you're starting to say, all right, I should not embrace wickedness. I once embraced it, but I shouldn't embrace it any longer because I have Christ in my life. So, but even if you follow Jesus Christ, wickedness is still coming at you from all kinds of directions. And I don't think I ever realized that as much as I did when I first became a father. One of the things that I feel a responsibility for as a father is what takes place in my home. I want my home to be a place where Christ is honored. So if, you know, my children growing up in our home, I I want our home to be a place where Christ is honored. There are certain things I want to screen out, whether it's something that, that would literally come via a screen or other influence. There are certain things that I don't want us to say. There's a certain mindset that I want us to demonstrate toward one another. The fruit of the gospel, I want it to be on display in my home. I want our home to be a place where Christ is glorified and lifted up. But it's hard at times to screen all forms of wickedness that want to invade your life or invade your home. And that, again, that never truly became as crystal clear to me as it did when I became a dad and was trying to filter that out, not just for myself, but for the benefit of our children, trying to filter those things out. Because here's the thing I've learned about evil. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to look for it. It's looking for you. You don't have to go try and find it. It's trying to find you. It's trying to hunt you down at present. And that would seem like a hopeless cause when you, when you think about it from that angle. You know, if you think about the fact that, hey, I'm not even looking for it, but it's still trying to find me. That feels hopeless. That feels like, in, in my mind, to a certain degree, it seems like, all right, that, that's, a, that's a very defeated mindset, or that's something that I would really be struggling with, if not for what Scripture reveals to, to us about what Christ is doing for us. I love the fact that Scripture tells us that with the strength of Christ, we actually can withstand evil, or actually equipped to do so. One of the best portions of Scripture that illustrates this is from Ephesians chapter 6. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 talks a, a lot about the spiritual battle that's going on all around us, and there's things that happen before the verse that I'm about to share and things that happen after this verse, but notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. In verse 13 of Ephesians 6, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Isn't that a helpful portion of Scripture? One of the things that I'm encouraged by when I look at that portion of Scripture is the fact that, yes, the Lord's told us that there's evil in this world and that evil is actively pursuing us, but He's also told us that He has not left us unequipped to deal with it. We've been equipped by Christ to deal with the evil that comes our way. And the Scripture here teaches us that ultimately, you know, it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand firm. So we're told in Scripture that we have been directly equipped by the Lord to be able to withstand evil. So you and I, we are not powerless in the midst of this struggle. And I'm grateful that even though we live in a world that is tainted with sin, we've been given the tools we need through the Spirit of God to withstand evil when it comes looking for us. So it's not a hopeless case that we find ourselves in. We can withstand evil when it throws itself at us. But Solomon goes a little bit further here when you look at what he tells us in Proverbs chapter 12. 
to not just talk about things that are coming at us from the outside, but he also he, he segues immediately from that thought to something that can be exhibited in our lives from the inside. And he also invites us to be people who withstand a haughty attitude. Do you use that term haughty? You know, like what, what do you think about that? I mean, like when you think of somebody that, that's haughty, you think of someone that's proud, you think of somebody that's... that's um, over-filled with themselves, over-emphasizing their own desires, looking at themselves and thinking that they are better than those they interact with. And look at what Solomon says, you know, related to this idea of withstanding a haughty attitude. When you look at verses 9 and 10 of Proverbs 12, he says it this way. He says, better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man. So it's like then to pretend that you're something great, right? Than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Now, several months ago, I had the opportunity to interact with a man that I did not know very well. In fact, I had just met him, and we have a common friend, so I was introduced to him through this particular friendship. And during the course of our conversation, something about him just seemed off to me. Do you ever meet somebody and almost immediately you could just perceive that something is off? So as I'm having a conversation with this guy, I realize, all right, something is off. And I wasn't immediately able to put my finger on it, but I could just tell something seemed not right. I wasn't sure if he had a chip on his shoulder, if maybe that's what I was seeing, if he just kind of was, you know, maybe one of those people that kind of walks through life with a chip on his shoulder. But either way, I wasn't a fan of how he carried himself. And that became apparent to me very quickly right away. And then he confirmed it by changing the conversation to something that I was very surprised that he changed it to. He turned the conversation. Imagine being in a conversation with somebody and them doing this, how weird this would be. He turned the conversation into a discussion of how much money he had. Now, who would do that? Is that not the weirdest conversation? Why would somebody do that? He turned the conversation into a a bragging moment about how much money he had. Now, I don't actually know if he has the money that he claims to have, but what I do know is this. He definitely wanted me to think that he has the money that he has, and as he bragged and bragged and bragged about all this money that he has at this season of his life, I think he thought he was impressing us, but I could tell you, I'll just confess to you what I was thinking in that moment. I was thinking to myself, what is the quickest way I can exit this conversation? (laughs) What's the quickest way I can get out of this? Because this is one of the most ridiculous conversations I've ever been subject to, and I grew instantly tired of hearing this man puff himself up in front of everybody and want to brag, because what are people doing in a moment like that? They're just trying to make themselves feel better by making those around them feel lesser in one way or another. And I think it's interesting when you read through the verses we just read, verses 9 and 10, because Solomon is the one writing these things down. Now think a little bit about what's going on in Solomon's life as he's writing these things down. At the time he's writing these things down, he's one of the richest men to ever live. There are few men that have ever walked this planet that were as wealthy as Solomon. He had more wealth than he probably knew what to do with, and yet look at the words he pens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Solomon expresses that it's better to be lowly and humble than to pretend to be wealthy. Saying it's better to be lowly, it's better to be humble than to pretend to be wealthy. It's better better to lift others up 
when they're with you than to try to drag them down or try to attempt them to make them feel like they can't compare to you in some capacity. Because what does conceit do? Conceit drags people down. Those that are conceited, what they end up doing is, instead of making others' lives better, they end up dragging other people down. They end up making other people feel bad about themselves. Conceit drags people down. But humility, meaning seeing ourselves exactly as we are from the eyes of God, humility actually helps lift others up. And those that are truly humble, and this is kind of an interesting thing when you look at the verses that Solomon pairs here, those who are truly humble, they might actually illustrate their humility to you in ways that surprise you. And one of the surprising examples of a person's humility, and just in general their value for the lives of others, it actually shows, themself, it shows itself in a unique way that might not immediately have caught your attention when I read it, but I'm going I'm to point it out again. It shows itself in the kind of mercy that they would show an animal or the beast of burden that maybe they've been blessed with. I'll read it again. It says, whoever is, this is verse 10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Solomon says that the righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Think about that for a second. He cares about what God has created. He sees animals as a gift from God and demonstrates the kinship or like, a, you know, that the, the ultimately a righteous person is actually demonstrating the kinship that God has created between humans and animals. Who here likes animals? All right, most people. Um, I, I like animals a lot. I don't have any pets. I had every pet you could imagine growing up. I don't want pets ever again, all right? I don't ever want them again. Um, but here's the thing. I really like other people's pets. <laughs> like, I like other people's pets, and I can tell that their pets like me. But I don't, I, don't want, I don't want a pet um, anymore in my life. But you know what sometimes brings me comfort? Seeing people interact with their pets. Or even having the opportunity to interact with other people's pets. And sometimes, do you ever come across a video? I, I actually confessed this to my wife recently. I said, do you know that sometimes when I just need something light, I actually you know, enjoy watching videos of different animals? You know, so recently I was watching a video of a guy who has a pet polar bear. I kid you not, pet polar bear. Don't recommend one of those if you're thinking about getting your kids something for Christmas. But I, there is a guy, you could find him online. He's got a pet polar bear. He goes swimming with the bear. He does all sorts of stuff. And I think, just make sure that thing's fed. You know, just make sure that that thing's well cared for. Otherwise, it's going to take a bite out of you. But recently I was watching a video that kind of warmed my heart. And there was this, this dog with a beautiful gray coat. You don't typically see a dog with, with this color coat. It was grayish, but it almost looked blue. It was, was like reflecting light in a particular way. And the dog was dropped off at an animal shelter because it was abandoned. And it was a beautiful dog. And so they put the, the dog in one of the kennels there, in one of the cages, and it was acting very skittish. It leaned up against the wall, wouldn't eat any food. And they were trying to figure out, what can we do to help this dog? This dog is obviously really nervous and really struggling. What can we do to help this? So the owner of the kennel got an idea. And at lunchtime, since that dog wouldn't eat its food, the owner, he took two dog bowls. One of the bowls, he put people food in, his own lunch. And then the other bowl, he put some dog food in. And he took both bowls and he went inside the cage with the dog and he sat down. And he started eating his own lunch. And every time he would take a bite of his own lunch from one of the bowls, 
he would reach into the dog bowl and he would take just a piece of dog food and just reach out his hand for the dog to eat it. And then the dog would nervously eat that one bite, but then kind of crouch in the corner, real nervous. And then the man would just calmly sit there and he's eating his own lunch from the other bowl. And then every time he took a bite of his stuff, he'd reach into the bowl and then hand the dog another bite. And the dog started to get a little bit more comfortable. And then before you know it, then the dog started putting its face in his bowl, and the man just calmly just sat there and kept eating his own meal, and just out of the side of his face was watching the dog to see if the dog would do his thing. But he just sat there in the cage with him, eating food to help that dog get over its nervousness. And then before you knew it, the dog started to get acclimated. And then the video showed what happened a few weeks later, and then what happened a few weeks later after that. And the owner of that kennel became so attached to that dog that he decided, I can't give this dog away. This has to be my dog now because the dog made a full comeback and the dog was so happy and now the dog just lives at the shelter and just is, I guess, basically ultimately is serving other animals that come in by its good attitude or maybe even tells them in his his dog language, hey, I know you're nervous on your first day. I was nervous on my first day here too, but I got to tell you, They have really good food here, and sometimes they even scratch behind your ears, and it's fantastic. And so the dog seemed very happy, but I looked at that and I thought, what would inspire a human being to show mercy to that animal? What would inspire somebody to do that? Why does anyone care? Why do you like animals? Why do you care? Why would it bother you to be cruel to an animal? Well, I think the reason it would bother us is because the Lord's done something in our mind and in our heart. Because he's starting to help us to see things the way he sees things. And Solomon even seems to indicate here that a righteous person displays that, not even just to people, but also you could just see the the mercy that is such a theme in their life as the Lord intervenes in their life, that they even show mercy to a beast of burden. That they would show mercy to a beast of burden. So it was an act of humility, you know, and again, when I was watching that video, it was an act of humility for that man to be willing to sit down in that cage with that dog. But when I look at something like that, I think, isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us? You know, when you and I think about the situation that we were in, he saw us at our lowest, he saw us when we were scared, he saw us when we were in a hopeless state, and he sat down and he ate with us. And he showed us mercy even while we were living like animals. And he invites us to model that mercy. He invites us to model his humble mindset toward others while resisting a haughty attitude. And I think that's part of why these verses are coupled together. I think they're complementary. And here you have Solomon bringing this up, this idea, you know, if we're building a life here ultimately that can withstand what's being thrown at it, well, one of the things we want to withstand is a haughty attitude because a haughty attitude does not reflect the heart of Christ. But a merciful, lowly, humble attitude reflects the heart of Christ. Well, Solomon brings up one other thing in this portion of Scripture that we'll emphasize today, and I hope it's helpful to you because I think it's certainly something that's helpful to me. And when you look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, he gives us an example of what it looks like to withstand one more thing, and that's the idea of withstanding anxiety. Does anyone ever go through a season where you felt overly anxious? Has it been recent? (laughs) You know, sometimes we feel anxious about all sorts of things, and when you look at verse 25... Solomon says it this way, he says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Let me read that again. He says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. 
Now, when someone you know is going through a season of anxiety, you can sometimes tell just by looking at them. Frequently, you could tell just by looking at them because the expression on their face will be down. Maybe they'll sit a little bit lower in their chair. Maybe their shoulders will seem a little bit more hunched when they're walking. Sometimes their pace can be a little bit slower. Sometimes their energy level might seem like it's depleted. Uh, there are definitely external signs that, that signify what's taking place in a person's heart. And if they're overcome by their worries, if they're overcome by their fears, their heart begins to just display that it's weighed down and it begins to feel heavy. Now, just last week, and I actually have permission from the person to share this, but just last week, um, I walked past one of the members of our church who started to display what I thought was different behavior for her. I I noticed something different about her facial expression, because normally she's a very enthusiastic, upbeat person, but that day I could tell just by looking at her face that something was troubling her. And so I took a moment to just talk to her about that, and she admitted that she was indeed feeling anxious, and what she was feeling anxious about was an upcoming surgery. And she was burdened by the thought. She was very nervous. You know, when you have something like that coming up, a medical procedure, a surgery, anything coming up like that, if you've ever dealt with something like that, you can't stop thinking about it usually until it actually takes place. And you start to feel nervous, even if it's something minor, even if it's something routine. And she was very burdened by the thought. It was a day before her surgery. She was very nervous. And so um, we talked about it for a minute, but then a, a few of us just gathered around and we took a few moments to lift her up in prayer and to offer her words of encouragement, and it seemed to help, and and thankfully everything went well with her surgery. She was fully well, and she's doing fantastic, and and, uh, it's great to see that, but it's hard when somebody that you care about their well-being is, when you see them dealing with anxiety, you can see that it really does weigh a person down. It gets in your mind, and it makes everything feel heavy. And this is what we're actually telling ourselves when we're dealing with anxiety. When we're wrestling with anxiety, we're basically telling ourselves that we need to handle the things that only Jesus can handle. We're putting the weight on ourselves that doesn't belong on ourselves. We're supposed to give it over to Him, but we start carrying it like it's our weight to carry. It makes us feel like we've been forced to carry a load that's beyond our ability to carry, which indeed it is beyond our ability to carry if we're trying to do it in our own strength. But when we're, when we're burdened by anxiety, we find ourselves in a spot where we're influenced to think that, that help is not available to us and we're completely alone in our struggle. And sometimes people get into a spot where they feel like that's the only thing they will ever experience, that that's what the rest of their life is going to be like, that they are going to just be in a spot of anxiety for all time. And then you come across a portion of Scripture like this from Proverbs 12, and in verse 25 it reminds us that there is an alternative to being weighed down by anxiety. Our fears like to keep us hunched in a beaten down state, a beaten down position, but here the scripture tells us that a good word can make us glad. A good word can make us feel light again. A good word can be used by God to lift us up. And I think it's interesting that it talks about this idea of a good word having that kind of accomplishment because there's no greater word than ultimately what the the message of the gospel is trying to convey to us. The word gospel literally means good news. And good news is proclaimed and demonstrated all throughout the pages of Scripture. 
In the, the gospel, we're told that, that God created the world and that He created humanity perfectly. And then we're told that we rebelled against Him and became both sinful and condemned. But in His mercy, He chose to offer us a second chance. Scripture tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth in flesh, and then He lived the perfect life on our behalf. And then He took the punishment for our sin upon Himself at the cross, and then He died in our place, and then He rose from death, and then He defeated sin, and He defeated Satan, and He defeated death, and He assures us that through faith in Him, we'll be forgiven, and we'll be given a new life. Scripture also tells us that in Jesus Christ, we are no longer condemned. We're made righteous. We're made holy in His sight. And that's the type of thing that you and I are supposed to dwell on. That's the type of message that we're not only to be preaching to others, but we're to be preaching that message to our own heart as well. So what message do you preach to your heart? Do you ever take some time to analyze what you preach to your heart? I get to preach to you usually once a week, maybe twice a week. And maybe even if you listen to the, to the back recordings, maybe even more than that. But I'll never have the opportunity to preach to you as much as you get to preach to you. You preach to your own heart all the time. So what do you preach to your heart? What message are you reinforcing to your heart? Is it the good word of the gospel or is it something lesser? Is it something that burdens you, that convinces you that your circumstances have no chance of ever improving? Or is it a reminder of what Christ has already accomplished on, on your behalf? Do you preach a message of condemnation to your heart? Or do you preach a message to yourself that reminds you of the fact that Christ already took your condemnation upon himself so that you no longer live, need to live as one who is condemned, but one who has been set free from condemnation, one who is no longer under condemnation, one who's made holy and righteous in the eyes of God? The message of condemnation produces anxiety in a person's heart, but the good word of the gospel produces joy. And the Lord wants us to be preaching that to our heart. He wants us to be feeding on that. He wants us to be meditating on that truth, because as you're meditating on that truth, as you're preaching that message to your heart, it's going to come out in your life, and it's going to impact your other relationships. It's going to impact your relationship with your spouse. It's going to impact your relationship with your children. It'll also impact the way you speak to people that you don't even know very well, or maybe people you don't know at all. Whatever you're preaching to your heart is going to creep out of your life in one way or another. And if we're going to be people who ultimately trust the Lord and, and walk with Him and withstand the anxiety that this world tries to throw at us, we need to be reminding ourselves of the good word of the gospel. We need to be refreshed by the good word of the gospel over and over and over again. So let me say this as we finish up this morning. With the power of Christ, your life can withstand what's being thrown at it. You have His strength to defeat the power of wickedness. You have His heart to combat a haughty attitude. And you have His hope to be able to repel the encroachment of anxiety in your life. So as we start off our week, as we're starting off, you know, this day and, and this, this week together, I just want to encourage us to do something. And that's this, to welcome His presence in our day-to-day -day lives and to let Him continue to build us up into being the people that He's called us to be, who ultimately utilize His strength, who utilize His heart, who utilize His hope, 
and we repel the encroachment of the things of this world that are ultimately trying to distract us from remaining focused on Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning. And Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that through your strength, we're enabled to build a life that ultimately can withstand the things of this world that that come at it. Lord, we know that we wrestle with all sorts of things. There's all sorts of of things that come our way. There's there's wickedness from every direction. There are haughty attitudes. There there are things that that try to provoke us to, to feel anxious and worried and burdened. But Lord, we know that, that we have true and genuine hope through you, and we pray that we would walk with that hope. Lord, thank you for your love, and thank you for your strength, and thank you for the ways in which you use your word to challenge us and encourage us. Lord, thank you for the fact that you haven't called us to somehow uh, navigate life absent of your intervention. You're present with us. You're giving us your wisdom. You're giving us your strength. You tell us that we have been equipped to stand up against evil. So, Lord, we pray that we would use the equipping that you've entrusted to us, that we'd be good stewards of everything you've brought into our lives, and that we would put you first in all matters and in all areas. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to withstand what this world throws at us. And thank you for the fact that you promise to be present with us in the midst of all of it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.